Hello and welcome to another episode of Tots. I'm your host, Ben Gardner. Today on the show, we have Emma Benoit. She is a mental health advocate and a suicide attempt survivor. Emma, welcome to the show. Hi, thank you so much for having me. Absolutely. I first heard about you through Kevin Hines, who uh, has also been on the show and has also survived a suicide attempt uh, and just started looking into your story a little bit. And uh, I just think you're incredible. And I'm really grateful that uh, you are an advocate now. Um, but walk me through or, or I guess the listeners through your story if uh, they don't know it already. Yeah. So that's pretty funny that you met me through you heard of me through Kevin Hines because he's kind of the one that kind of influenced and kind of empowered me sharing my story in the first place. So to give a little preface of what my story is. So when I was 16, I attempted suicide and it left me paralyzed with a spinal cord injury um, from C, uh, C5 to T2, which is the vertebrae in your neck. So essentially a broken neck um, from my spinal, from my suicide attempt. And so surviving that and overcoming all the physical challenges that I was faced with I uh, really um, realized that I do have a purpose and I do have a reason for being here. And so I felt like my story kind of empowered me in a way to be my authentic self and share the feelings that I was so afraid of um, and the things that I was struggling with um, prior to my suicide attempt. And we can get into the details of that um, as we go along. But um, yeah, I was 16 years old and uh, my summer before my senior year of high school, I attempted suicide. And prior to that, like I said, I was really struggling with depression and anxiety and truthfully didn't know, didn't know it. I didn't realize that I could even suffer with those things because I totally believed in the stigma um, surrounding mental health um, and particularly surrounding suicide and suicidal ideation, um, which I was experiencing um, but I invalidated all of that because I believed in the stigma and I thought that there was, you know, a certain criteria that needed to be met in order to be able or be allowed to suffer with depression, anxiety, um, really anything with your mental health. And to be just transparent, I had never heard the words mental and health used together in my life before. Um, so my exposure to mental health and really what it is and all that it encompasses was very minimal. And I was really in the dark with it. So struggling with my own forms of um, mental illness and not knowing what I was actually going through on top of feeling shame and guilt and fear um, behind those feelings, it discouraged me from opening up and I never sought help. Um, and faithfully on that day when I moment of crisis struck, I impulsively acted on it and um, regretted it instantly and, you know, have come to this place now where I'm able to share about my experiences and um, share about the details of my story without it um, feeling heavy. Um, so it's been quite the journey and um, I am so blessed to have been able to live through something like that and then to overcome it in such a way. So, Yeah, that's, that's amazing. I want to focus on one of the things that you said uh, and I think this is why I love having people like yourself, like Kevin on the show to talk about their experiences is that I, first of all, I think you guys are incredible for your strength to be able to do it, but also that journey that you have to go through where, you know, in the process of, of having that happen and then being able to talk to it, talk about it to other people 
at, on a pretty regular basis, I would assume. What does that mm-hmm. look like for you? That was one of the most, you know, momentous things to happen in your life. And now you're able to help other people only because you're able to talk about it. Yeah, it was quite the full circle journey that that journey in particular, I have a series of journeys that I've, you know, endured and overcome and faced, but that journey in particular is one of my favorite because it makes me so proud of to see the growth and the progression in myself. Um, But it was, like I said, quite the journey because, you know, prior to my suicide attempt, I was not open about my feelings. I was very um, closed off, very reserved. I even went as far to create this facade of a person and this hard outer shell that really wasn't me. Um, I've always been such an empath and, and, and a, just a soft hearted person, but, you know, growing up with that, um, and having all my, my mental health challenges, I really suffocated that true person and put on a facade and maintained this character for people, um, to be, you know, the strong one, you know, have it all together all the time. And, you know, to be so isolated in my feelings and to be so isolated in what I was going through in my mental health journey to have such a pivotal moment like that, um, because it did shock my entire community. Um, It was a shock to myself even because, you know, I never really thought that my problems were that serious. I never thought that they would fester in such a way and ultimately lead me to do something like that. So for me to have been so isolated in my feelings and then have such a pivotal moment, which was a shock to me, myself and everyone. And then to come on the other side of it, you know, it really was a journey that I didn't begin until I would say after I came home from the hospital, I didn't really begin to unpack everything and, you know, process all those emotions because I was pulled away from the place that it happened. It happened in my parents' home. And then I was brought back there after being released from the hospital. And everything just came rushing back to me. And so it was a true evolutionary journey for me to walk through, you know, being faced with everything again and being reminded of everything again. Um, But I will say the key thing that I attribute why I was so willing and able to share my story was number one, I began to blog. I just began Mm -hmm. to write it. Um, All the things that I never was able to express verbally, I just began to write them. And my mom actually encouraged me to share my blogs. And so I went through with that and shared them. And then the thing that happened after sharing my blogs is what has propelled me on this journey. And that is the response that I've got from people. The overwhelmingly positive response that I got from just sharing my truth and sharing my journey authentically and vulnerable, um, it was just overwhelming, overwhelmingly positive. I felt such a sense of community and something that I had felt so isolated in before. And I just have learned so much. And so it's just been, like I said, just such a full circle journey for me, you know, going from not ever speaking about anything that I'm feeling to now advocating and like just advocating for people to speak about how they're feeling, you know, on this journey of mental health awareness and particularly suicide prevention. I never would have pictured myself being a capable or be feeling worthy enough to be in this position. Yeah, for sure. I also think that transition is such a big one because you go from a place where you're feeling so vulnerable to now vulnerable people seek you out and they come to you and say like, Mm -hmm. this is how I'm feeling. What do I do about this? Because you've been through that 
mm-hmm. experience. Um, and something that I, I didn't realize until uh, I was doing a Instagram live with Kevin was that this is like a constant thing for you guys. And I mean, it's once you become an advocate, yeah. you, you don't get to yeah. like turn that off. And and we were doing a live and somebody came into the live and was uh, asking about resources and things like that. And they said, you know, uh, I was feeling like I was going to harm myself. And, and he just like immediately snapped into like advocate mode and like, here's some resources. I want you to message mm-hmm. me after this is, you know, I, I don't want to belittle any of it. This is a massive undertaking to become an advocate. Did you have an understanding of how much work and, and how much energy was going to be required of you before you made that decision? Or was it just kind of like instant and you just went into it? So, yeah, to to talk to that point, it is definitely kind of like a full time thing. Um but I never really, and still really, am learning so much that this position, I guess we can call it, really holds. Um, it is a very heavy position to be in. Um, obviously, very grateful and humble to be able to be in this position, like I said. But it is definitely very heavy. And I really never truly understood the, I guess, the the, the needs. Um, it was I was really in the dark with how many people are hurting like I was and are struggling alone in silence like I was. Um, I was honestly very naive and oblivious to that point until I became an advocate and stepped into this role. Um, but <clears throat> to speak to the point of, <clears throat> excuse me, to speak to the point of, you know, always having to be on and always having to, you know, maintain this certain level of, um, I don't know what to call it, what way to kind of put this, but just to always be aware and just to always be on, essentially. It is draining. It is tiresome. Um, but it is also, and I can only speak for myself, I'm sure Kevin and other advocates feel the same way. It's very re- rewarding mm-hmm. as well. Um, and every time that someone comes to me with their story and comes to me with the things that are clearly hard for them to talk about, I'm so grateful to that person because um, it's, very evident that it was challenging for them to share that with me, but they chose me to share it with. So I don't take that lightly. I take it very seriously. And, um, yeah, it's just, it's, uh, like I said earlier, a position that I never saw for myself in the future, one that I never knew existed. So, um, but I'm still learning, you know, resources and things like that to be able to be the best advocate I can be, um, in all the ways that are available to me. So. Sure. Yeah. I mean, it's, it is such a big undertaking, I think, and especially, you know, coming from that background to then have to make that transition like we talked about and and to get into it is just like, I mean, I, I just have so much respect for you guys. And I think it's so important what you also talked about in terms of stigma. You know, there's massive stigma around mental health. Uh, we see it in the news constantly. And I think my problem with the current way that it's portrayed in terms of mental health is you have all of these people right now rushing towards like share your mental health experiences and like speak up and all this other stuff. But at the same time, you know, people are ridiculed or treated differently because of that mental health issue that they might have that they are sharing. So it's been such a weird 
past couple of years, I'd say over the past like five years where we've seen that push for people to be more open, but some of those people have also been met with ridicule. Um, and so like from your perspective, mm-hmm. where are we in that process of getting rid of the stigma? Are we making good progress? Are we moving back a couple steps? What do you think? That's hard to gauge, honestly. You know, I really only see it from what I'm doing and the the people that I'm impacting and influencing. Um, so on a bigger scale, you know, this, this kind of goes back to me being new into this world of advocacy and, you know, mental health awareness. I don't, I'm not sure on a larger scale what, what the progress is looking like. I would like to think that it's probably in the upswing um, just based off of how many nonprofit, nonprofit organizations are out there active and doing great things. All the agencies and organizations that are out there right now, currently boots on the ground, doing great things. Um, so, you know, you see that, but then you also, like you said, on the flip side, see the stigma still lingering. Um, but from where I stand, you know, I definitely feel like not to, you know, sound conceited or what I, what have you, but I feel like stories being shared and experience being experiences being shared is opening up conversation mm-hmm. and changing dialogue. And I think that from my perspective is key in chipping away at the stigma in a huge way. You know, we've got to come to the understanding and realization firstly, that our mental health should be prioritized the same way every other health that we prioritize within our body mm-hmm. is prioritized. Um, that's, that's first and foremost, um, because, you know, growing up, you know, in South Louisiana, mental health was not heard of, you know, the only times I've ever heard the word suicide was either on a TV commercial as a a symptom or side effect rather of medication or my grandmother, you know, whispering in my ear, you know, oh, he killed himself. We don't talk about that, you know? So those are really the only times I ever heard of these things, these terms. And so, We've got to start using these terms in a more um, normal way, not a casual way. That's 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 the double edge right. of this whole thing that I'm trying to do. You know, I'm not trying to casualize these terms, which they're seeming to be very casualized amongst the youth um, these days. Um, but you know, normalizing these terms, making the the terminology more like evident to people, would probably reduce some stigmas because you know. For me, when I would have a suicidal ideation or a thought of suicide, I would be so afraid because of the word, you know, and it's like, why was I so afraid Mm. of the word, you know, um, and just normalizing, but not casualizing these phrases and these terms, you know, and another example of, you know, language change and language shift could be something like we, we've got to get away from saying, oh, he's an addict or, you know, she's, she's bipolar, you know, she suffers with bipolar disorder. He's sub- he suffers from substance abuse disorder. Right. You know, those are the things we need to start becoming more natural and normal. Um, and that's really, a- aside from sharing my story, my experiences, and engaging with youth and relating with them and empathizing with them, you know, and sharing some things that I wish mm-hmm. I would have done, things like that on the other side of that work, I do like to kind of influence people in this new direction of, language and dialogue because it matters. And, you know, we all conversate. That's our number way of commu- number one way of communicating. So conversations and words matter, 
you know, I hate the saying sticks and stones, break your bones, words don't hurt words hurt. You know, they yeah. have weight. So we've got to just, that's, that's where I view. That's the, when you bring up that point, that's where my head For sure. goes. It's the language of that. Yeah. I think you're right. It's like, uh, you know, I think a lot of young people look at some of these terms and as it becomes more, um, you know, available in terms of people talking about it, of course, it's going to get picked up by younger people who are going to misuse it and things like that. Um, so right. changing, right. you know, that's like another stigma is, you know, we're trying to make people take it seriously, yes. but it we're not trying to get it to the point where people are just using it so freely. Um, you know, I'm sure I'm sure that's another uphill battle yeah it definitely is and and maybe that's the way that maybe that's my perspective Mm -hmm. on that fact on that case of that matter because of kind of my audience and the people that i kind of gear towards um when sharing my story it's mainly like the youth and um like high schoolers you know because i was a high schooler um i wasn't a youth that long ago Um, i'm only 21 i'll be 22 this year so i'm still not that much far out You're in age still kind from of them. A youth. So you count was, as a youth. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. definitely. Yeah. Well then, Hey, I'll take it. Uh, I wish I could be young forever, honestly. I mean, but yeah, so that maybe that's why I kind of pull that perspective. For sure. But I think, I, I think it's, it's your perspective, but I also think it's probably accurate, right? Like, you know, I yeah. remember being in yeah. high school and, and people, you know, they have a tough day and they're like, Oh, I'm going to kill myself. Like, I think that's mm-hmm. that's one of the mm-hmm. most common ones that I see where it's like misused in that way. Yeah. And the education is lacking yeah. as well because that individual that you that let's let's go with that hypothetical scenario. So if that individual he could either A have just said that off the cuff because he wasn't thinking when he, before he was speaking, or he could have B really there could have been meaning behind right. it. Right. Right. He could have had a suicidal ideation because something went wrong and you know he thought, well, I just would wish I wasn't even here or nothing would matter if I wasn't here. And that's a suicidal ideation. And maybe that, you know, so you've got to, it's a fine line that we're, that you have to kind of mm-hmm. teeter between, but it's all about education and just normalization and just all the things that have to do with, you know, these phrases and these things that we say or we hear people saying. Yeah. And it is, it is so weird too, because I think a lot of the education, I mean, people talk about this all the time, but a lot of the education around Mm -hmm. mental health crises or issues is, especially depression is made to look super dark and gloomy. Like obviously you'd pick Mm -hmm. up on your friend being depressed because they're not hanging out with you. And like, there's a, a literal dark cloud over them and like whatever, but I think a lot of the education now, or at least a lot of what's being pushed for by other advocates is like depression and anxiety and, and all of these other things don't look the same for every single person, but also they don't look the same as we may have been taught just because somebody's smiling and seemingly mm-hmm. happy doesn't mean that they're actually happy. And and I think that requires like a deeper right. look into the people around you, which I mean, it's tough, right? Because right now we don't connect as much. Yeah, Yeah, definitely. And to speak on that that point, that is totally true. And that is the stigma that kind of hindered me from feeling confident and justified in what I was feeling. Because that stigma portrayed, like that exact thing like says that 
someone with a seemingly perfect or a seemingly good life doesn't have the space to suffer mentally. And so I believed that. And I totally was like, well, why am I feeling like this? Like, you know, I have a family, I have my brother, I have friends, I'm a varsity cheerleader, you know, I make good grades, you know, like I have all these things. Why do I feel like that? So that, that trapped me, that, that belief that exists. And definitely the whole, the whole concept or the belief that depression is always just sadness, right? That it's all darkness and dreariness and gloomy and the person's never having good days. They're never smiling. They're never interacting with people. Um, but that's just totally false and a myth and not the case at all. Um, and I'm, I'm proving I can, I, can pr- I live to prove it. Um, because, you know, for me, de- my depression wasn't a constant thing. For me, it was, while it was always there, it wasn't like it affected every second of my life. I had good moments. I had moments where I laughed. But so for me, depression wasn't constant sadness. It was just the inability to feel genuine happiness. That was it. Like I never felt like I was actually genuinely happy with anything or anyone. Like when I would be laughing or smiling or joking, yeah, I was doing those things. But deep down, I didn't actually feel that that way because there was a sense of identity that I was so lacking. And there's, I, there's a, a suicidologist recently taught me this acronym. It's a long acronym, so you might have to Google it because I'm not <laughs> going to remember it. But it's, uh, yeah, it's is pathway. So I S P A T H W A Y, um, or maybe it's is path warm, but either way, it basically gives all of the possible reasons or scenarios why someone could be suffering or is suffering with depression or Mm. suicidal ideation. And I hit about just every single one of them, um, identity, purpose, um, value, you know, um, acceptance, all these things I was lacking so much of. I didn't have direction. I didn't have desire. I had lost all my passions, which is, I know now that's a sign. Um, but all these things that I was going through, um, no one would have ever known because that stigma trapped me into thinking that if I speak up, if I tell people how I feel, they won't take me seriously and they won't give me the time of day to even listen to what I have to say. Because they're going to brush me off and say, what do you have to be depressed about? What do you have to be anxious about? What do you have to be sad about all the time? Which is you such know, a um, shitty, then it, they it's would, such a shitty like thing that I think people come to other people with sometimes. Like we all know people who mm-hmm. you go to them with your problems and they're like, yeah, but like you have this, this and this like you're or I, mm-hmm. I hate the one. Mm-hmm. The biggest one I hate is like uh, compared to some other people, your problems are nothing. And it's it's this constant belittlement of like oh, whatever you're feeling, like mm-hmm. either you don't deserve to feel that way or it's incorrect because mm-hmm. you have other great mm-hmm. things. How could you possibly whatever? And it's such a negative like just whatever on somebody coming to you with their problems that like that can cause real harm. And I think people don't recognize that. Absolutely. Those two statements were said to me countless times. And when those were said to me, it only reinvalidated what I was feeling because occasionally I would, you know, obviously we're human and I wouldn't always be able to hold it together so perfectly. And I would crack and I would misbehave or act out. And my mom would catch it and be like, what is going on with you? You know, 
And I would lash out a little bit and, you know, I'd be met with that. Not only my mom, but my coaches, my teachers, my peers, my friends, like everyone really um, would approach the situation in that way. And it's, I attribute that to just education, past upbringing, right? We were just kind of like bred essentially to suppress our emotions and to invalidate our own feelings and to not fully feel our own feelings and to tell ourselves, toughen up, you know, people out there have it worse than you, you know, um, things like that. And that's not healthy. It, it definitely only contributes to the mindset that is very toxic and the one that I was living in. Um, so that's also something I'm trying to break away from and just trying to reframe people's perspectives a little bit, because it's easy for someone to automatically respond with that when someone says that they're struggling, you know, because you immediately look to what they have in their life to, you know, be thankful for, be quote unquote grateful right. for, right? Um, and so, but that's all surface layer stuff. You wipe all that stuff away. What is that person actually feeling though, right? Like what is the person actually going through aside from everything, the outside circumstances of their life? Um, yeah, hundred yeah. percent. What, did you have any external factors that you feel were affecting you and, and, like kind of leading to your depression or strengthening it? Or was it just internal things? So like examples of things that were happening that might be those external things that people would talk about. Um, so you mean like some examples of some things that was happening in my life because of my depression? Yeah. So like, did, did you have any external factors that you think were also leading to your depression or was it just internally Uh, you just, despite other things, kind of like we were just talking about, like despite some things going really, really right, there's just something that's missing. Right. Yeah. So it was definitely a combination of both for me. I would say the internal factors started to fester when I was about 12, when I really started to notice that things were really heavy on me and I just, I could never let things go. I always would over fixate on things. And I, by nature, I'm a perfectionist and as all, also a people pleaser. Um, so having those two traits in my character really only influenced and amplified the feelings that I was feeling. And those feelings stem back from feeling like I don't have a place in this world, feeling like I don't have purpose, right. Or like a, a, a reason for being here. Um, and that, that, like I said, started to fester when I was about 12 and, you know, but that was the internal side of it. And then on the external side, because of the internal feelings that I had, you know, my lack of confidence, my, you know, extreme insecurities that I never shared with anyone, or never talked about with anyone, um, you know, my constant need to fit in, constant need to have acceptance from my peers. Um, I really immersed myself into the popular group. And with that came some pretty mean girls. And um, that was something that really affected me. Um, having my own friends not really accept me, not really want me around. Um, that was something externally that was happening um, because internally I was only, you know, in that environment because of my internal um, troubles that sure. I was facing. So I would say they kind of went back hand in hand. Um, you know, everything that I felt within, I made a point to completely turn around on the outside. Um, so I was actually very insecure. I've always 
and very insecure about my figure. And when I was in middle school, I was bullied because I was, you know, a late bloomer and I was always very tiny and very thin. And, you know, I remember instances of being insecure to get up to go to the bathroom because people were going to make fun of my legs, you know, and so that was an insecurity that was only amplified by my peers, right? So internal and external coming together. Um, you know, I was insecure about, you know, my face and, you know, makeup was something that I was really getting into and I experimented with makeup and probably wore too much. Um, and I got picked on about it in middle school. And so things like that, you know, really just kind of only started to build and build and build as I got older, you know, as I got older, the problems just became seemingly bigger, you know, and more heavy. And I think when I was 16, I was at a place and a position where, you know, it was the summer before my senior year and it was either one thing or the other was going to have to happen, you know, and I just fully cracked. I couldn't maintain this lifestyle sure. anymore mentally. That's a lot. Yeah. Thank you also for sharing all this. I mean, this is, this is big. And, and I think like you said earlier, sharing is how other people relate and then also end up sharing their stories. And, and, you know, I do think that advocates like yourself help to save lives. So thank you for sharing. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. I've, I get, I get, I feel empowered from sharing because that exact thing is very true. You know, people do feel like they can relate and then in turn they do open up. So it just continues this momentum and kind of this ripple effect in a positive way. Yeah, it's huge. You know? So uh, I want to talk about some, some good stuff as well. Not that what we have been talking yeah. about isn't good, but we, we've been, yeah, yeah. we've been <laughs> talking about all that good stuff. Now let's, let's talk about some other good stuff. You had a yeah. film made about your experience and uh, mm-hmm. it's it's very popular and, and people love it. Talk to me about how that came to be, where it's going, who's seen it, things like that. Yeah. Yeah, so the film is also kind of a full circle journey as well. So I had mentioned earlier that I started to blog to process my feelings when I came home. That was kind of the initial entry into this journey that I'm on. So the blogs were published online and someone that's local to me here in Baton Rouge came across the website and shared it with her brother, who is a producer by the name of Greg DeSherry. And he's also local to Baton Rouge. Um, And he worked on the Suicide the Ripple Effect film with Kevin Hines. Um, And so right around the time that he found my blog through his sister, they were showing the film for the first time to a live audience here in Baton Rouge, here in Baton Rouge. And they invited me to be on the panel after the showing. And I had just recently seen a video of Kevin Hines that my dad showed me through Facebook. And so I had known Kevin Hines, known about his story. And then I got this opportunity. And so I'm like, of course I would love to be a part of this and of course get to meet you, Kevin Hines. And so I went to the premiere of the showing and shared my story in front of people for the first time ever. And the response after that also encouraged and empowered me to continue sharing, um, but only verbally with people. And so Greg and I just stayed in touch and he came over to my house one day with his camera and started filming. And initially it was going to be a PSA um, for his day job with Magellan Health, um, but it turned into much more. And um, it's, a journey that was totally divine and kind of things just seemed to happen in a way that needed to be documented. 
Um, and it's really been a great tool for me in my advocacy work um, because it is getting some traction and people are learning about it and wanting to see it and share it. Um, so right now we're just doing um, screening events. We're offering screening licenses to different people. Anybody can purchase a screening license um, and host an event. And I have gotten the opportunity to be at some of these events and share um, after the film with a like a Q&A and get to just be there one-on-one to interact with these people and have private conversations after. And it's just been such a blessing to have my story be portrayed in such a way that educates and can resonate and just communicate such a bigger message. Um, so it's, and I mean, that's kind of been the basis of my journey thus far has been, you know, the film and sharing my story through the film and with the film. Um, because I started sharing my story through the blogs about eight months after my attempt. So it, and then after that, it was about right at a year that I met Greg. So it's been quite the journey. So, but the film has been such a blessing, like I said. I'm sure. Yeah. How long were you in the hospital after your attempt before you came home? So I was in the hospital hospital for about a month. And then I went to the rehab hospital, uh, inpatient rehab hospital for about three and a half months. So totally like about four-ish and a half months I was in the hospital. So it was quite some time. Um, did a lot of a lot of physical recovering during those mm-hmm. months, for sure. Um, you know, I went from being completely paralyzed from the neck down, quadriplegic, to having full feeling and body movement in my body. So um, the journey was a definitely a treacherous and a long one. Um, I would wouldn't wish it upon my worst enemy. Not that I have an enemy, but you know, I really gained a lot of patience in that journey. I'm sure. Yeah. And, and something you said earlier that uh, I hear from a lot of people is that the instant it happened, you immediately regretted it. So like, like Kevin always says, and, and I'm sure he's repeated this, like, I don't know, a million times at this point, cause he's everywhere. But he says the second that his foot left the rail of the Golden Gate Bridge, he immediately felt like, oh, shit, like I screwed up. Like, this is not what I want. I want to live. And I think that that's inspiring to me because it means that even at your lowest low and even at the point where you feel like nothing's worth it, if you do get to that threshold, you do immediately feel like, no, I do want to live. I think it's just a matter of Mm -hmm. people when they have that crisis convince themselves that it's just easier not to, Mm -hmm. but it's, it's always still there. It just might be hidden. Do you feel like that? Absolutely. I mean, my story in that regard is totally parallel to Kevin's. I mean, the minute that the firearm went off, I don't know if I prefaced before, but I used a firearm to attempt suicide. And the minute that the firearm went off, I felt instant regret and my ideation immediately changed. You know, I was living with this ideation and these thoughts, not necessarily of ways to attempt suicide, um, not actual thoughts of what I would do or how I would do it, but more so the thoughts along the lines of, um, I wish I wasn't hey, here to have to deal with this, or things would be easier if I just was gone, or the thoughts of even, 
I wish I was never born. I mean, that's a suicidal ideation in right. and of itself. Um, or, you know, acts like, um, I would be driving my car and just be so tempted to just swerve into the other lane, you know, because it would just be easy, um, easier that way. It would, I would just be rid of all of the pain and hurt that I had been feeling. Um, but absolutely instant regret. My ideation completely changed in the moment that I did it. I knew that it wasn't what I wanted to do. I knew that I really didn't want to die. I knew that I had just made a huge mistake because I truly thought I was going to die right there. I mean, by medical definition, my injury was fatal. Um, I severed my carotid artery, which cut off blood flow to the left side of my brain completely. So by right, that should be a fatal in injury. So I thought that I was going to die. And I, with everything in me, did not want that to be the case because I thought to myself, no one is going to know that I didn't want to die. Mm. And they're going to share my story. And it's not going to be my story. You know, it's going to be their story from what, what, what happened. So the, all those thoughts came rushing to my head. And immediately after it happened, everything that I wished I had thought of before doing it came to the surface. You know, I thought of everything that I'd be leaving behind, every person that I'd be leaving behind, everything came to my head immediately after. And so I think that that factor, because when Kevin said that, I, I knew immediately that I was not the only one that I just, I knew that I had someone else to just kind of validate that yeah. within me. And so it gave me more, it gave me more power, essentially. It made me feel more empowered. But that fact alone, I've been told is a deterrent for people. You know, just the fact of even when your brain tells you these things, Ultimately, knowing that people who have lived through something like that came to regret it immediately after, that can be a deterrent. And so it is a very powerful fact. And I'm always so empowered every time someone shares their survival story with me and shares the exact same scenario. Yeah, 100%. I think, too, it's, uh, you know, we mentioned this earlier, like sharing these stories because it allows people to relate is why it's so powerful. And I think understanding that, like, I know your brain's saying one thing and your heart's saying one thing, but like truly deep down, you do want to live is like you said, it's just so powerful. I think people just get into mm -hmm. positions where they can't see that or understand that. And they, they're going down a certain path and then that's all they can understand at that moment. Right. Right. But that, but that fact too can also not only be a deterrent, but can also allow the person to maybe pause right. when they're in that moment of crisis. Because I think the pause is so crucial because a little backstory of the day of my attempt, I was actually on the phone with my mom when it happened. I had called her because I had got to the point where I was like, I can't do this anymore by myself. I can't carry all these feelings and these weights anymore by myself. I've got to talk to someone. And so I called my mom and she was, we were, she was, I hadn't told her everything yet, but I was making that step. But then those thoughts just overcame me and I got into a tunnel vision and I could not see the light at the end of the tunnel at all. It was just completely dark and there was no other way that I thought that things were going to be better for me other than that. And I was on the phone with her and 
you know, some of the last things I remember saying was, how can I help you? What can we do to get you help? And the last, one of the last things that I remember saying to her was, mom, I just need help. I just need someone to talk to. And then it happened. And so if I would have just known the things that I know now, or even an ounce of what I know now, maybe I would have been able to pause and truly think about what it is that I was doing. Um, Because the pause can be the matter between life and death. And I think that hearing stories and knowing stories like myself and Kevin's and people who share their stories, knowing the fact that we do regret it right after can be powerful in those moments where you pause. For sure. Yeah. So kind of to answer my question from a little bit earlier, it does seem like there are certain steps being made in like mass media. Uh, And the biggest one that I can think of that I was looking into last week is uh, the rapper Logic's song about suicide prevention. Have you heard that? I'm Mm -hmm. sure. Mm -hmm. Yeah, definitely. So I was doing research on that last week and um, they did a study that found that uh, it has probably likely saved at least like 10 people's lives and like has changed like the stigma and all that. What ways similar to that do you see us changing kind of like the mass stigma? What are some other ways other than just like sharing people's stories? Do you see that changing? Um, Aside from lived experience being shared and, um, music, um, it's, it's actually, you know, this is actually devastating to even, to even think that this is the reality, but I feel like when people that are well-known and famous people, we should just call them famous people. When famous people die by suicide, the media is, immediate to address it. They're immediate to, um, you know, push out all of this stuff about mental health and, you know, looking out for one another and supporting one another through mental health and all this stuff, which is great and amazing, but it seems to be following only the death of, um, famous people or influential people in the media. People that matter. Right. And I say that because it's, it's interesting because, you know, there is hardly any ever any talk about mental health or the mental health crisis that our country is facing. Um, I mean, suicide is still the second leading cause of death in America. Um, So it's just, it's, it's sad to see that there's hardly any talk about it on the media um, versus when someone does pass away, like for instance, most recently for Miss USA passed away by suicide. Mm-hmm. And after her passing, it seemed like everyone was back on the hot topic again. Um, right. And that's, that's, that's the part of all of this that really kind of is discouraging, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, but I'm not really quite sure you asked me on a positive note and that's not really a positive note, but um, I mean, reality is reality, right? It's, it's good to talk about yeah. it either way. Yeah. I'm, I'm trying to think, because there is so much positive and good happening For sure. in communities across the nation. I mean, smaller communities, of course, but communities nonetheless, with people nonetheless. Um, so I, I think I, I really, yeah, I'm not sure how to, what to, I'll have to get back to you on that one. Yeah. I think I'll just leave it at that. I'm not sure. I mean, 
to to your credit, like the biggest one is sharing stories. That seems to be the yeah. most effective in terms of what I've heard and what the studies would support because it gives people that opportunity, like you said earlier, to be like, holy shit, like I'm I'm not alone in how I'm feeling. I'm not crazy. Mm-hmm. Other people feel this way and there's a way that I can get around it. For you after your attempt and after you came home, the blog obviously was massive for you, meeting other advocates. What else, uh, what other services did you utilize to kind of try and get yourself to a place where you felt like you could start sharing your story? So I began in therapy quite kind of immediately when I got home. I started seeing a talk therapist and just got into therapy and just got to counseling and started on that route. I um, was on some medication for the first, I think, three years post-attempt. Um, and that seemed to really do wonders for me and be very valuable and beneficial to me during that time in my life. Um, and I saw a psychiatrist and the psychiatrist was actually really the one that just made me, made me feel so sure about everything. Um, because she put like a, a definite diagnosis and a definite name to something that I had been experiencing my entire life. So to hear, you know, a diagnosis like that, it's like, Oh, okay. Like it's actually real, you know, it makes it real because like, I'm guilty of it too. Like falling under the belief of the stigma, you know, prior to going through what I went through, I really thought that mental health was something that just people who are weaker or people who don't have the right upbringing really suffer from you know, and that's not the case at all, obviously, but, um, so yeah. Yeah, for sure. I think it's, it's so weird because that stigma around mental health has affected therapists and psychiatrists for sure. Why do you think people are so afraid of therapy? Like I, I personally go and see a therapist. Some of my friends do Mm -hmm. as well, but then I talk to other friends and I'm like, yeah, man, like, you know, I, I, love our conversations and I love helping you out. But, you know, I think it would probably be good to see a therapist and they're like a therapist. Why, why would I ever do that? Like there's such a, they're so like afraid of it. Why do you think that is? You know, I don't know why exactly. I really just can understand from why I felt like that. Mm -hmm. And, you know, for me, like I said, growing up, the way I grew up, you know, you just didn't talk about your feelings like that. You didn't work with your feelings with anyone. You didn't see a therapist, you know, you didn't do that because it wasn't a need, you know, you didn't prioritize your mental and emotional needs like that. Um, that's kind of how we were kind of bred coming up just because of the generation's knowledge and understanding of mental health as a whole, um, kind of was the catalyst for this understanding and knowledge or lack thereof that we are still seeing these days. Um, But, you know, for me, seeing a therapist was so, such a, such a foreign concept to me that whenever I heard about people doing that or when someone would maybe, I don't quite remember if anyone ever said that to me, but I really would get defensive when someone would say, you Mm. probably should do this or this or that, you know, and that's a sign that there is something actually going on that you probably need to address. But for me, therapy, the whole idea of it, concept of it was just foreign and scary. I just thought it was so scary because the way it's portrayed on on TV and on movies and on media is, you know, you're laying on a couch 
pouring out all your deepest, darkest feelings and thoughts and secrets right. with a complete stranger. It just, it's not portrayed in the way that it actually is, you know, um, therapy's great. I love therapy. It's been one of my biggest aids in my journey, my own mental and emotional journey. Um, there's so much value that you can get from therapy and I'll tell really anybody, you know, that therapy can be beneficial for you. You know, you don't have to be going through really, really pressing stuff to benefit from a therapist because sometimes, you know, we just need someone to go to that's not our family, that's unbiased, that, you know, it doesn't matter whether or not we hurt their feelings or they hurt ours. Like, we need that sometimes. So it's all about talking about what therapy actually is and normalizing that because, you know, I think it's just all stems from the way we kind of were what we were kind of taught and what we kind of heard growing up, you know, that sure. we kind of react like that. Yeah, for sure. I think that's a huge part of it is, is just upbringing. And then it goes back to that stigma, right? It's like, Oh, like I hear they're yeah. in therapy, like what's wrong with them. Yeah. And it's, it's right. that whole concept of understanding that like, from my perspective, going and seeking help and then getting help for your mental health makes you like more of a person, right? Like not less, like having an issue and then solving it. Uh, I live really close to DC. I lived in DC for four years and there's this, uh, this page that it's called overheard in DC. And it's like, there's one in New York. It's the same thing. And like, it's just crazy things that people hear. And one last week that I loved that they posted was, uh, the new, um, Oh shoot. What was it? It was talking about therapy and how like, there used to be this like ultimate green flag. Oh yeah. It was like, like a tall person. So they're like the new being tall is when they say that they're in therapy because they're like, that's, that's such a green flag. Cause they're able to mm-hmm. like go and get help for their stuff. So mm-hmm. I'm pushing yeah. that Therapy's a green yeah. flag. I love that. Yeah, it, absolutely. I stand by that too. I mean, it is definitely a green flag. That's a sign of strength that you're willing to put everything aside despite the beliefs that's around mental health and everything like that, you're able to negate all of that from your head and only focus on what you've got to do to get your mental wellness in check. I think that's huge. That sign that, that shows a sign of strength and ownership of some of your life. I mean, I so wish that I would have had the courage to get myself the help that I needed. Um, because at the end of the day, you know, you've got to root for yourself. You've got to be there for yourself. You've got to be an advocate for yourself. And something that was said to me actually from my therapist was you've got to treat yourself like someone you're responsible of taking care of. Mm. And that's huge. It's huge. Because yeah. if we do that, then we will be able to set aside and maybe wipe away some of the myth that's surrounding this this topic of mental health, you know, and seeking treatment and getting therapy and all the things, you know, maybe if we do that, then we won't be able, that will kind of disappear a little bit. Right. You're responsible for making sure that you're treating yourself correctly and making sure you're in a good space. For sure. Definitely. Because the, you know, the saying that, and this, this range true from my life, I know personally, um, you can't really fully show up for someone else if you're not fully showing up for yourself. Yeah. Um, that's huge because I 
since having gone through therapy and since doing therapy, I am the most self-aware, strongest, I think, that I've ever been, you know? So much, much value comes from putting your mental health as a priority. For sure. That's awesome. Well, Emma, this has been great. Thank you so much for joining me. Where can people follow you or find your stuff? So very simple. Um, I'm on Instagram. It's just my first and last name. Um, My last name and then my first name is my Instagram handle. And then I'm on TikTok and it is at it's Emma B um, with two E's. And then the film is at www.myascension.us. So that's just about it. And if you are interested in my blogs, they are still active. And that website is www.liferejuvenated.org. Awesome. Yeah, I will definitely make sure to also put some mental health services and some phone numbers in the uh, show notes just in case people are experiencing any of those things. need to find some services or somebody to talk to. You can do that there. If you enjoyed this episode and want to listen to more, you can go to www.totspodcast.com. You can also listen to us on Spotify, Google Podcasts, and Apple Podcasts. Those are our big three. You can follow us on Instagram. That's where I'm going to post most of the content, new episodes, some good pictures of Emma uh, before the episode. Uh, Also follow us on TikTok. We're about to have a bunch of content come out there. But guys, I hope you're well. If you're not, you know, definitely find some uh, some support and listen to some good stories. And I'll see you next week. Bye.